everybody, and welcome to the 147th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's being renamed the Mythic Fest Finance Arena Weekend Extravaganza. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. How are you this week? Very good, sir. How are you heading into this holiday season? Uh, just fine. Just fine. Enjoying all the holiday sales to buy crap for myself. <laughs> Yay. Uh, quite a shakeup this week. We'll be talking about that a little later. Big news for pro community. Um, but Magic anyway. finishing the year in style. Yes, lots of big changes in in a style. I don't know what style it is, but you could call it a style. Uh, Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. What do we have on our agenda this week, Travis? James, this week we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. We're going to look at the cards that have risen the most in price this past week. Segment two is our cards to watch. We'll go through the cards that we think might see a rise in price in the future. Segment three, our metagame week in review. We'll check in on GP Portland. Uh, it was a modern event with about 1,800 players. 1,812, more of 1,812. And finally, segment four, our top of the week. Maybe a couple Ultimate Masters updates, but of course, the big news this week, the Pro Tour shakeup, I'm sorry, the Mythic Championship shake up uh the pro tour is dead long live the pro tour um big news this week so we'll we'll talk about that dive into that see if we can make sense of it but let's start out this week segment one our top movers uh (laughs) first card this week is thing in the ice uh non-foils from 12 to 14 dollars for 16 percent gain your 401k would be glad to have 16 percent uh this is definitely 16 percent a month would destroy most 401ks right is our standards are higher but that's not <laughs> something to sneeze at i know is a continuation of the foil momentum we've been seeing um it, it appears that this in this way that the foils are basically dragging the non-foils along yeah so while i admit that this is not uh, a huge amount of movement it shows that the non it's telling when the non-foils start to chase the foils it's also uh, worth noting that Thing in the Ice is now in the top 15 creatures in modern. Ranks number 13 on uh, Goldfish's online uh, survey. Just behind Drogskull Captain and just in front of Bedlam Rubbler. Um, so the deck is relatively popular. It's not just some fringe thing that one guy brought to one tournament. We're showing, seeing the Arclight Phoenix Thing in the Ice decks show up again and again. And indeed, we're going to see two of them in the top eight from GP Portland when we get to that part of the discussion. So I think it's worth noting that Thing in the Ice is probably a year or two out from having any shot at a reprint. Um, And even the non-foils could be gainers in over $20 in that case. Okay. Um, I mean, it looks like the next card here is kind of a continuation of that concept, right? Yeah, so Cavern of Souls, um, Ultimate Masters, Box Toppers have been notably uh, reversing trend. 
Um, I've been telling people on social media that they should be looking for their best deals on box toppers and key cards from that set uh, in late December, early January as the credit crunch hits. But um, as we have seen with very popular cards and past master sets, sometimes the market mood gets worried that they're going to miss the low and starts buying in early. Um, and a combination of uh, legitimate player demand, because people want to get uh, a reasonable deal on this stuff, um, and the fact that this is a four of modern staple that also shows up in other formats, um, and I'm sure some healthy dose of speculation, has led the box toppers for Cavernous Holes to reverse course, and they they have doubled back up over 200 for about a 20% gain in the last couple of days. That's a, you know, that's a, huge, a huge change, but... Seeing Cavernous Souls, both non-foils and foils, sort of um, halt their progress and double back is is meaningful because it means those are changing course a lot faster than we would have expected. So uh, that could be pretty good news for both versions uh, in the in the coming future. It's also worth pointing out that on TCG Player, you can sort not only by low and high price for a given set, but also by best selling. So um, it's worth checking in with something like the box toppers when you're trying to pick out your specs to see what is selling well and and um, cross-reference that against the lowest possible price because a, really uh, a, a card that sells well and is priced lower than other cards um, that are, say, double the price might be a really good target. It's worth noting that Cavernous Souls is the third uh, best-selling box topper um, after one of my picks this week and Snapcaster Mage. Um, so... Even near $200, the box toppers were selling briskly, and there is now just 17 listings left on TCG Player. Um, this underscores one of the points I've been arguing on Twitter for several weeks now, which is that the overall print run for Ultimate Masters, at least the chunk of it that has appeared in the market so far, cannot possibly be as large as some people have said, because if that, if that was the case, um, we would see far, far more copies posted to TCG Player and other similar platforms, and we're just not seeing that. The uh, total amount of listings for these box toppers, um, especially the ones that are very popular staples that tend to be purchased as four ofs, um, is drained at a level that we haven't seen since, you know, the runs on the previous masterpieces like the Inventions and uh, Invocations and Expeditions in like the winter of 2017. Yes. Moving along to uh, Rolling Stones out of 8th edition, foils from 7 to $10. That's definitely part of Arcades, uh, you know, demand continuing to carry on there. Not not too meaningful, and I'd be surprised if anyone has any foil Rolling Stones left uh, that they are, you know, they were waiting to sell. Uh, I mean, I suppose maybe if they bought in at 5 or 6 and they were hoping to get lucky uh, now, Now's your time, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't wait too much longer because who knows if you'll ever actually get rid of these things. I think in late spring, uh, or it must have been midsummer. I think midsummer when Arcades was revealed, I picked up maybe two or three seventh and eighth edition foil Rolling Stones. I think I sold one of the seventh edition ones pretty quickly. Other two have just been sitting in the box. So um, again, these are the kind of specs you don't want to be too deep on because you'll end up holding for longer than you expect. Yeah. Oh, and you know what I think here here is the takeaway is that. Um, EDH commanders, even after they've kind of fallen out of vogue, you know, they have their brief moment in the sun right after they're printed, everyone gets excited about them and then they kind of fall back and you, you know, you continue to see stuff like Atraxa and, uh, Brea or Muldratha 
become very, you know, stay popular. Well, those ones kind of fall away, but there are still people building those decks. They enjoy playing them. People keep coming back to them. Um, so while they're not necessarily a eager place to put your money, um, they do certainly continue to drive demand on some cards. Right. All right. So next on the list, we got back to basics out of Ultimate Masters. You know, a card that's near and dear to my heart. It's uh, in theory up from fourteen to twenty-three dollars this week after crashing super hard on the original copies. Um, it's about a sixty-four percent gain. Clearly my fault, right? Because I knew it was coming in advance. This is all part of my back to basics master plan. I mean, it's working out well for you here, right? Like you spoiled it, prices crashed. Now you bought in at ten dollars, and you're just riding the wave up. Man. I guess the whole strategy was to like make people angry at the card or something so that i could buy them all because they were shunning it is that what i was doing I, yeah i think that sounds reasonable yeah it, it's you're right it's, i mean it's up 60 percent. so go mtg finance <laughs> uh got shot out of new phyrexia you know a dollar to two dollars or so um not huge but this is definitely getting into like maybe uh oh shoot what the heck is it um Monomorphos territory, right? Like kind of in that general vicinity. Uh, you know, there's a little bit more gut shot out there, but it's been now it's been a little while, right? Like the last one was Modern Masters 2015. Yeah, the second one is what I'm thinking, which means that this has got a little bit of time since we've seen it. Uh, yeah, it was a common in Modern Masters 2015. So it's not going to be, a, a, you know, $15 like we see with uh, Monomorphos. But I do, I do think this could climb a little higher than $2. This could be upwards of 3 maybe four dollars like there's a universe where that's possible i'm willing to bet that the buy lists are fairly generous on this card right now given how much play it's seeing in the phoenix decks yeah well i would imagine they get uh a yeah, huge get... place a uh, huge uh liquidity on this uh you know the stores do they sell these constantly i'm sure yeah so you can get a dollar fifty <clears throat> cash a dollar ninety five from card kingdom uh on store credit and looks like the that's on the new Phyrexias, and it's the same price for the Modern Masters 2015. So they just want to get them in stock. Going to be hard to go wrong at current pricing. Yep, seems pretty good. Uh, and the last card of the week, Rapid Hybridization out of Commander 2015. This is the the blue eighth bolt. Uh, it's uh, turns an opponent destroys an opponent's creature and replaces it with a three three uh, three three frog, right, or something like that um yeah also a dollar to two dollars and change but this is a commander 2015 copy uh you know gate crash is still plenty of those out there too right so i don't think this is too big a deal here she's also like not on our list but there was cavernous souls box offers were not the only ones to reverse trend um quite a few of the cards um, barely had a chance to register on the price radar um, as their prices were entering the market last weekend before they quickly started to experience extreme demand um, that was outpacing supply. And it's going to be interesting now to see as, you know, boxes given as holiday gifts and tax season kicks in in January and February, whether there's a second wave, et cetera, and how all of that factors into um, uh, the inventory for these box toppers and important cards in that set. 
uh, fills in. Um, I suspect that we are going to see some reversing of the inventory trend and it will build back up because I think that what happens in the case of really hyped cards is people jump in that really want them and can afford to grab them without really thinking too hard about it. And they clean out their portion of the inventory, which in this case looks like a significant chunk. But the market still has plenty of boxes out there under 300 bucks. And so long as boxes are available in that 250 to 300 range, people will keep opening them, uh, looking to you know set themselves up for a mid to long term gain uh, or potentially flip them faster, depending on what their entry point is. And the turning point for this set that's going to lead to very expensive boxes and the singles reversing course in a hurry is going to be the draining of that you know sealed inventory. If we get another wave of this stuff in Q1 2019 or later in that year, um, as they did with uh, Eternal Masters, where they said, oh, yeah, single single print run in the summer, and then boom, around Christmas, it, it was back on the shelves. Um, then I think that you'll see the turning of that corner dragged out further, but it'll still take place. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fairly accurate read on what we're looking at here. Okay, well, that, I mean, that's it for segment one. There's just not a lot going on here this week, uh, but that's not surprising, right? This is that time of year where people are generally not paying too much attention to magic. Um, people are concerned about Christmas, New Year's, all that good stuff. So not too much on that front at the time. Uh, so let's move on to segment two. Uh, our card swatch. James, looks like you've got a, a, a bounty for our listeners this week. So why don't you get us started? Yeah, so if we're looking over, speaking of uh, the box toppers from Ultimate Masters, looking for some things to touch. Um, one of the cards that we didn't that didn't make our list above, but uh, could well have, was through the breach. The box topper that shows uh, Emrakul being raised from the ocean. Um, super sick art on that. Easily the best that that card's ever had. And the box toppers were as low as $60 or so uh, just a few days ago. Some price pressure has been applied on those. And it is not only the best-selling box topper on TCG Player, it is also one of the scarcest. Um, and now you can get it for somewhere between 75 and 80 Probably by the time you hear this, you're talking about 80 solid. Um, I think that's uh, a shoe-in to get from 80 to 110 It's not like you see a lot of play for this card in a whole bunch of different formats. It's mostly a fringe modern card. But uh, I guess it's also a cube mm -hmm. card. Um, and between the cube and the modern demand, uh, it seems like uh, they're going to be able to chew up quite a few of these. It might be a case where you get a chance to out it over 100 in pretty short order and get a pretty modest profit and keep rolling into something else. Then the market fills back in and knocks it back down. I could see you get a if you were really patient and didn't want to jump in at 80, you could roll the dice and hope that you get a 70 or $60 price point as the market backfills. Um but there's no guarantee it does that. It could just post up over 100 and stay there. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me either way. If this ends up being the most or one of the most popular box toppers, it, it could totally um, refuse to come down. You know, right? we, this could be the lowest point for the card. Uh, and, you know, we could, that doesn't mean you won't get the backfill, but I, I could see it going both ways. It really just depends on how popular it remains relative to the other ones. But, uh, you know, some of the other box toppers, you know, I, I I feel like through the breaches more interesting than like the Liliana, uh, the art people love the art on through the breach, first of all. Um, and it is a card people keep coming back to. Yeah. And the Liliana art they've chickened out of, of redoing multiple times. <laughs> so we have the original pack foils. We have the pro tour promo. We have the, 
um, Modern Masters 2017 pack foils. We now have Ultimate Masters pack foils and Ultimate Masters box toppers. So there are five premium foils for Liliana of the Veil, um, which uh, are more or less all the same thing. Yeah. The uh, I think box topper wins in that equation if we're talking about that card as a side note because otherwise they are all pretty much the same. Um, for purists, they may be going after things like Russian foil Lilianas um, or original set foils. Um, but in terms of best looking version of the card, I think it's got to be the box topper for most people. The um, sorry, you had a comment. You say the box toppers have been quite popular overall. People really like the frames. They're a uh, a I'm going to say professional or variant on the ones on the most common types of our altars, altars. we see, which is just the borderless yeah. extensions. Uh, so I think they're they're very accessible for most people. They're not huge and gaudy, you know. As a, you put the invocations on the other end of that scale, right? They're just so dramatically different, um, very alienating. Uh, but these are very easy for most people who enjoy magic to appreciate. Yeah, when I was publicly criticizing the Amonkhet invocations, this is exactly what I was suggesting they should have done. <laughs> so I'm not at all surprised to see them come around to embracing, leaning into the culture that was already established. The um, What I will say about... Uh, through the breach however is that my gut tells me the popularity of the purchase on tcg is more speculation than it is player demand and i think that that will you will be able to test that by observing whether it backfills um, if inventory starts to build up past that initial speculation wave um, that can be a pretty good sign that it was speculation and not player demand um, if it never backfills or stays relatively steady in like the low teens, 20s kind of number of listings on TCG, it suggests that the you know supply demand equation has hit some kind of equilibrium. Um, and it, it could also suggest that speculators are doubling down um, on the basis that maybe they thought, hey, this is like way too cheap for a good looking box topper that actually will see some play in a couple different formats. Um, and it's possible that somebody with deep pockets made that move and that they can go in on another 100 or 150 copies as they show up. But for people that were saying that there are like 30 or 40,000 of these box toppers or even 20,000, I find it hard to believe given that we're seeing like scant dozens of some of these on TCG players so far. I would be surprised if Through the Breach was or really any of these were a... Uh active action of a speculator especially through the breach though i mean that this this seems like a weird card to speculate on relative to the other box toppers like maybe to fairy or some of the more popular uh outwardly popular ones but if you're a speculator with that much money to throw around i have to imagine you're looking you're looking at the the box hopper options or other cards and going these are a better choice for me than through the breach right through the breach has a certainly an element of uncertainty that i, I feel like other cards wouldn't well not teferi right because that teferi is from mythic edition oh uh, yeah sorry it's all the same thing <laughs> uh fair enough in fact i would argue mythic, mythic edition is probably the better opportunity as we discussed last week yeah um, yeah but the yeah i mean the second place after through the breach is snapcaster then cavernous souls then raging ravine surprisingly and then Ancient Tomb. Um, Ancient Tomb looks fantastic. I think I do want to play some of those. And then Dark Depths after that. Um, I think you can easily make an argument that the, the Dark Depths, um, which is currently available in about the 115, 120 range, that's probably a future $200 card as well. Although I would guess it might be a longer term hold. It's the, the most, like, some of the best art of all the box toppers. 
um, gives you a really good look at Merit Lage for once. And, you know, for the few people still playing Legacy, a fairly important card. Yeah, the Merit Lage or the Dark Depths is definitely awesome. The question is, is there enough people that care, uh, which is a big question mark. Uh, and I'm inclined to think that demand will overall be relatively shallow um, just because there's so few people that have anything to do with Dark Depths, but that won't stop it from being a really cool card. All right. Hit me with uh, your first pick this week. <clears throat> yeah, so I, uh, you know, I'm trying the channel a little bit of Warren Buffett here. Who's, you know, fearful when others are greedy, greedy, greedy when others are fearful. And I'm trying to look where other people aren't. So while everyone is very wrapped up in the box toppers and barely Mythic Edition, I'm going way back and looking at the inventions, right? It's all of what, two and a half years ago, <laughs> three years ago. Uh, it's ancient. Um, but I noticed engineered explosives is at about half of the supply of all of the other inventions right now at least in terms of of the reasonably popular ones um it, it is it is one of the most popular actually i think it was like seventh or eighth most popular invention so reasonably high um i had a soul ring probably because of the price uh but you can get an invention engineered explosives today for 120 bucks which uh you know when you look at like soul ring and monocrypt and monoball that seems pretty reasonable uh for a card as prevalent as it is and the the ramp on that from 120 up to 150 and 180 is four copies five copies i mean it's not a lot uh it's very quick before you're up into the 150 range so supply is very low people that own them aren't generally selling them um you, you know you're slowly going to see them bleed out from attrition you know people's money isn't being put here at the moment because they're hyped up on these other promos but that doesn't mean that there won't eventually you won't eventually see these sell out so you know for 120 bucks i think these are probably hit 200 pretty easily 180 you know it seems to be where you know they kind of jump to 200 210 and then might pull back to 180 but with with how, with how low supply is and how steep quick and steep that ramp is i feel like that's a pretty comfortable bet Okay, so how do you feel about the box topper version at $66? You mean the pack foil? No. There's a box topper. Is there a box topper on that too? Yep. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. But that ramp looks pretty good too. <laughs> In fact, that should probably be on the list as well. Um, I, I would argue, I, I agree with you that there are very few of the masterpiece inventions left. I think that they are the best looking of all of the masterpieces. Um or you know, neck and neck with these box toppers, um, depending on who you're talking to. But given that you can get these for under 70, um, and inventory is not particularly deep, I could see the $70 box topper versions getting up over 100 faster than the masterpiece versions push another 50 or 80 higher. Yeah, I, so when I, I'm, thank you for letting me get all the way through that before pointing this out to me. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I had checked this and seen that it wasn't a box topper, but I must have missed that. Uh, I mean, Maya culpa. I didn't know if Phyrexian Tower wasn't a box topper, and I spent like twenty minutes trying to find it. So I'm I'm inclined to say that it has that it matters, but not that much because they're so distinctly different. Um, the invention ones are so are so are very different than the the UMA ones in terms of art and the border. And I have to imagine that if you really like the UMA box toppers, you could kind of just do like the MMA foils or the MMA, 
or the yeah, just the MMA foils possibly for or the are the UMA and, foils and, you can get the UMA pack foils for probably easier whereas the inventions are so distinct. Well, I mean, and ultimately if it's in the top 40 cards in modern and it is and there are less than 60 listings total between the two premium versions they're probably both going to do well. I mean, Snapcaster Mage um, had both an RPTQ and a box topper version, and Isis and is still in the top three most popular of the box toppers. Right. If a card is has a high enough demand profile, then giving it a premium version every couple of years isn't going to suppress the prices of premium versions. In fact, we've seen the opposite with some with stuff like uh, Masterpiece Soul Ring. Um, sorry, yeah, Masterpiece Soul Ring dragged the price of the Judge Foil Soul Ring up the hill um, as it started to push three or $400 US. Um, and we saw something similar with Masterpiece uh, Mana Crypt pulling up the price of the Eternal Masters foils uh, for Mana Crypt. So I won't be at all surprised um, if either or of the premium versions ends up being a solid pick here. Yeah, and I, I think that's correct that ultimately you're going to be, ultimately, ultimate you're going to be pleased with all of the options here. Um, it just might, maybe it slows it down a little bit. I mean, the ulti- the box topper version of explosives could be one of the next ones to tumble upward. The the ramp's looking pretty steep. You could buy some today at like 65, and I'm willing to bet you you could get out of them at 80 to 90 within the next couple of months. Yeah. Okay. What is your next pick? Much more low-key, um, but it did just top eight GP Portland as a four of... Um, Engineer, uh, sorry, Eldritch Evolution foils, pack foils from uh, Eldritch Moon, um, have quietly uh, been sitting around at $8 draining out of the marketplace. Um, I think these are shoe-ins to hit 15 on the basis that it is clearly a playable, if somewhat fringe card in modern, um, but played as a four of when it's played. And it's in like 8,000 decks on EDH Rec uh, a couple years out from its first printing. Combination of those two things and... Uh, the fact that this is one of those open-ended synergy cards where you are it allows you to immediately jump from one creature to another creature in your deck that is two casting costs up the curve is always going to be useful in EDH and only gets more so over time, um, allowing you to do more and more busted things. And the combos that are built into the deck in Modern, where you're basically doing the whole Devoted Druid, uh, Vizier Remedies game plan, um, are, is probably going to expand. It's going... that strategy is likely to get stronger and stronger um, as it gets more inadvertent combo pieces as the years go on. Yeah, I mean, this is hardly the first time we've talked about that, other than, but that doesn't make this a bad pick. We both really liked it. We liked this when it was spoiled. We liked it. Uh, I feel like I, I talked about this a couple months ago. It's a really cool card. It does great things in modern. It's going to continue to be a popular choice there. Um, what is it? So foils are... eight. Eight bucks right now. That's right around where we were thinking. I think that probably isn't too much more than where it was, but it just it's it's going to go eventually. And if it's not, <clears throat> you know, if it's not in the next month or two, it's still it's still so well positioned. And it dodged the UMA reprint. I really like Eldritch Evolution. I'm certain I have some of these sitting in my like 
long-term spec box that have been rotting and i'm pretty sure i paid more than eight dollars for them back in 2016 so uh definitely was in early on that particular move and i will be happy to dollar cost average by snapping up a few eight dollar copies this weekend yeah that doesn't seem bad at all good way to lower your your buy-in price there if you fail just double down it's that simple yeah that's why uh, you should own nine or ten bitcoins by now um, okay, so I will uh, I will do my second pick this week. Uh, it's kind of an odd card, Mina and Dan Wildborn. Uh, you don't know what this card is, and that's fine. Most people don't. I couldn't tell you. I have to look it up to be able to tell you what it does. This is from Oath of the Gatewatch. It's four mana for a 4-4. Four, four. Uh, you may play an additional land on each of your turns. So it's got the Oracle Maldaya thing going on there. Uh, and you can pay two mana to ret- and return a land you control to its owner's hand to give a creature trample, uh, which is great for, um, you know, creatures that need to have trample. Uh, and returning the land is helpful. It allows you to play, um, get more landfall triggers and that type of thing. Or uh, you can use, you can pay two, you can tap your guy's cradle, add a bunch of mana, return the guy's cradle to your hand, and then play it again with Mina tap it again and frankly you can you can land drop the guy's cradle twice in one turn which is actually pretty wild maybe that's why this card is so popular um anyways i don't i don't really quite understand why people love this card so much maybe it's just because of the play pattern i outlined and hadn't thought about till i started talking but it's in 6500 decks as a non-commander um which is quite a bit the supply is real low. There's only a couple copies below 758 bucks, but you can find them right now for 450. Foils are available for 450 of this guy. Um, you know, there's not a lot out there. It's another steep ramp card. Uh, you know, we're just getting there on EDH demand, which is what I want to think about. And uh, you'll understand why I want, why I'm interested in EDH demand when we hit segment four and we start tar- talking about the pro tour these days. So uh, it just seems like a real solid, a real solid pickup. It's just going to be $10 one day and like you're not really going to notice it but if you had bought them at 450 you will this is the kind of shit people left on draft tables right like these are the commander cards that the competitive players that don't edh just don't even realize they have sitting around in their binders that they could trade into stables they need for their decks yeah and i mean you know it's it's still the foils right it's not the non-foil but yeah people this was a hundred percent draft shaft uh at the time all right, so moving on to my next pick this week. Uh, the other box topper I've got my eye on is Life from the Loam. Um, mm-hmm. 10,000 EDH decks on EDH Rec, and it is a persistent four of in both modern and legacy dredge decks where it is a fixture that is very unlikely to get unseated from those decks. You can get the box toppers right now for 60 bucks. I think you can conservatively assume they're going to get to 80, giving you like a 30% plus uh, gain um, minus fees. And entirely possible it just ends up a hundred dollars plus when all is said and done sure i mean really all the box hoppers are so good i can't i can't dislike any of them at this point well it's about it's kind of like a similar discussion to the earlier engineered explosives comments which is that the most expensive version might not be the play if the other one has a better chance of doubling up we talk about that sometimes like is arc light phoenix foils at 50 that might go to 80 better than something we can identify that is 20 and might go to 40 answer is you usually want to double up um and this is one of those cases as well where because through the breach and life in the loan are sub 100 they could easily one day be 200 um especially if people are really wrong about how much is getting printed of ultimate masters and we never get the second wave um in which case six months from now they could be 200 um 
But if you're looking at, say, box topper Liliana, who might be 250 to 300 in the midterm, is she going to be a 500 card like Masterpiece Soul Ring at some point? Entirely possible. But that her best case, therefore, would be like 100% minus fees. Whereas with Life in the Loam, you might be looking at significantly more percentage wise in a shorter period of time overall. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately what we care about, right? Is the percentage gains, you know, absolute value is great, but, uh, all things considered, you really want the, the percentages. Yeah. And as per my comments earlier, make sure you're annualizing your percentage. Like if you make a hundred percent a year versus 15% every month on something, do the math. You really want 15% per month. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, once you start count compounding, it's not even close. So the, you know, don't be, don't feel like you didn't do so well if you can flip something quickly. I mean, to get, sometimes you get to flip Mythic Edition for double in the same week, but don't be shy if you're only getting 10, 15, 20% in a very short period of time, if you can consistently pull that action together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Totally agree. All right. So my final pick, I got a bonus this week, is uh, the Phyrexian Tower aforementioned. <laughs> this is um, Ultimate Masters. This foils. is the whoops. I didn't realize this wasn't uh, box topper. <laughs> pick. Yeah, I, I spent forever. I spent spent forever trying to find a price for it, and I'm like, holy shit, it's sold out. Oh, I missed. No, I didn't. It's not a box topper. However, it that's actually better <laughs> because the box toppers I think will probably subvert demand for the pack foils from this set makes sense because if the prices are even remotely comparable then a lot of people will prefer the box topper versions um even though i think i, I have to do the math i'm not 100 percent sure if pack foil mythics are more rare than box topper mythics i have to i have to do some math and and, and double check on that but putting all of that aside the bottom line is that virex and tower this is only its second printing ever it's its first ever foil printing and inventory is not particularly deep, and it, at minimum, it is a cube in the EDH card. Um, and it's open-ended synergy because it provides a sacrifice outlet and a mana boost. Lots of decks, especially black ones, want to be recycling things out of the graveyard. Muldratha, I'm looking at you. So Phyrexian uh, Tower foils, say, around 38 or $40 to get to 50 or 60 in the mid to you know 6 to 12-month period is probably a pretty safe bet. Uh, yeah, I mean, foils on a card that's never been foiled before, extremely popular in EDH. Uh, a lot of people might have been holding off because they couldn't play it because, you know, they only needed a foil copy. And, you know, now it's putting more non-foil copies in decks as players who are new to the game and didn't know it existed, hadn't seen it at their store. Now they're like, oh, this is a card. I can play with this. Maybe they're going to go get the foil. So I really like foils of this at $38, given relatively how few there are and how much pent up demand there's got to be left for this thing. Yeah. All right. So I think that's a, a solid swath of picks for people this week, getting their value uh, out of us. Let's uh, move on to our metagame week in review, diving into GP Portland, which was a big modern tournament with 1,800 plus players um, this past weekend. Another uh, bevy of interesting decks, um, some stuff that people see have seen plenty of lately, but a whole bunch of decks coming uh, to the forefront of this tournament that uh, I don't think people would have uh, put very much money on on top aiding. Uh, the tournament was ultimately won by the Grixis version of Death Shadow that we have seen fade in and in and out of prominence over the last couple of years. Um, took a backseat to many of the combo decks for for a while, um, but here it is yet again winning a major tournament. Um, can't can count it out yet. And I would take another closer look at Death Shadow foils, given that it hasn't seen a reprint lately, 
and uh, clearly the mm-hmm. deck is still viable. Uh, Death Shadow is going to continue to lurk on the fringes. It's a little bit jundy in that regard, right? Where there'll be weeks where it's good and weeks where it's yeah. not great. But once they figure out what the version needs to be to beat the decks of the week, um, you'll see it rise to the top again. Amazing how Death Shadow went from irrelevant to essentially a modern staple so quickly. Um, I do see we've got two Phoenix Dexes, decks in here, uh, third place and, you know, fifth through eighth. So that's several, you know, it didn't win, but that's several weeks in a row that this has really done a number uh, on the on the event. Very impressive that that's all there. Um, and Elves, too. Elves this week is interesting. Uh, some Beast Whisperer, that's relatively new. That's out of Guilds of Ravnica. He's the four mana, two, three. When you cast a creature spell, draw a card. So he's a permanent glimpse of nature. Remember, glimpse of nature was what made elves a deck back and extended, and that's been banned in modern since it was printed or since the format started. Beast Whisperer could end up revitalizing elves in modern quite a bit. Um, I mean, four mana is real hard to get down and it still dies to bolt. But if you cast it and your opponent doesn't immediately bolt it, uh, you can, might be able to go off pretty hard with them especially when you consider you can be getting him with um, like Collected Company or something like that, or not Collected Company, a Court of Calling or Eldritch Revolution. Both, uh, amusingly enough, not in this build, though. Yeah. They, I think they can actually combo off in response, too, if they've got the right pieces ready. Um, because uh, they can you, you put both on the stack, and they just do a bunch of shit in response, tapping and untapping elves, generating a bunch of mana, and setting up for their win, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, nothing here gives your elves flash. So you can't draw a bunch of cards in response to them casting the lightning bolt. Doesn't Beast Whisperer just draw a card? Yeah, it's whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. Uh, yeah, so you cast one creature, one-ish elf, they bolt your Beast Whisperer, and now you don't have a response, right? Because you can't play your creatures at instant speed. Uh, yeah, but you can generate a whole bunch of mana and then pump up Azuri, right? Uh, yeah, but I don't know how that matters with Beast Whisperer. You can, uh, you can prevent, you might be able to get Beast Whisperer out of bolt range, but I mean, it's not going to stop Path. Yeah, I'm clearly no elves expert. Absolutely right. <laughs> it's, they, you're uh, going to lose the instant speed interaction, but if they don't have it, you get to go off. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, bottom line is elves, elves players like the blue black fairies deck that showed up in this top eight um, are lurking on the fringes, ready to take advantage of people that probably have no <laughs> idea what you're doing. Um, I... I would guess if you've played Modern for a while, you've probably seen an elf deck or two in your local meta, but you probably haven't played against Blueback Fairies anytime recently. I, I saw a uh, a tweet that said, this must be how people who get angry about not hearing Merry Christmas, this must be how people who get angry when they don't hear Merry Christmas and they hear Happy Holidays instead feel. And they were looking at a deck with Jace and Bitter Blossom being called Blueback Control instead of Fairies. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it's only got seven fairies, um, but it's hard, harder to pick a deck. Nine with the mutable. I mean, it's got four bitter blossoms. Yeah, it's got so it's got four bitter blossoms, and it's got a couple muta vaults. Like you don't need much more for it to be a fairy deck. Yeah. I mean, it it plays as fairies played. That's yeah. the important part. It, right. it is 
presenting extremely innocuous threats and then using control spells to ensure that they eventually seal the game. Snapcaster uh, is a is a uh, honorary fairy. Interesting mix of kill spells in this, given that they're limited to the two colors. Um, two cast down in the deck. Uh, four fatal push, which would be expected. A hero's downfall. Um, maybe a nod to Teferi and other random planeswalkers and stuff at a Tron. Um, anyway, a, a very eclectic mix of decks. Um, a further signal that despite, um, you know, KCI, um, I think SEG Invitational was this weekend, and I'm pretty sure that top eight was very combo heavy. I think it was KCI versus Storm in the finals, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let me just double check that. Well, well, you check that. I will say I think that uh, Beast Whisperer out of Elves might be the most fascinating card here. Um, I mean, it's got a long way to go, but if it turns out that's going to revitalize the archetype, um, you know, I think foils of that are probably dirt cheap right now. So that's likely it would be a good good pickup. Other than that, even though we got some eccentric decks here, nothing, none of the cards are unexpected or out of the ordinary. Um, so I don't yeah, this, see... Hmm? This is more like about underlining existing specs. Yeah. Um, Phoenix foils are draining very, very heavily. There's like six listings left on TCG Player that could easily end up being a $100 foil in the near future. Um, uh, Court of Calling, Eldritch Evolution, and Porce Mortem Lunge out of the Creature's Toolbox deck definitely fringe players but if the deck was to post up a little more uh, prevalently in the format um elder evolution foils and postmortem lunge foils could easily make a move as could court of calling foils yeah the this deck is fascinating the post postmortem lunge is is real good uh what do you i guess you can't lunge your ballista but you can lunge your combo pieces um, yeah that's what you do and there's your four eldritch evolution Court of Calling, man, there's a card that feels like it should cost more, right? Doesn't that feel like that should be more expensive? I'm upset that it's not. There just hasn't been, I mean, <laughs> the the most prevalent player to be driving home cords um, has fallen from the spotlight. And there weren't a whole lot of other people on that tour that were uh, driving the green decks home. Yeah, so. but even still, 750 for cords. Come on, come on. The card is better than that, people. It's nothing to do with the fact that I've got like 30. <laughs> <laughs> What's your buy list out? Shouldn't you just be buy listing those? Yeah, it would be a profit if I buy listed, but I dodged the Ravnica reprint. So now I'm like, well, heck, now I really want it. Clutch yeah, at them. Get, are, are these Ravnicas or 2015s you're holding? 2015s. All right, so you can get 650 credit on those. Yeah. Them. yeah, I mean, it's not bad. I mean, I could send them the channel fireball and up my my pile over there. I still have like a thousand dollars in credit at channel fireball. I don't know what to do with it. Hmm. I want to use this platform to complain the channel fireball that you don't sell board games. Cause I wanted to buy the terraforming <laughs> Mars expansion with my store credit, but you don't sell it. And that's annoying. I had to yeah, send in a store buy list to another store just so that I get the expansion for free. What the heck? Problem with board games is they take up a lot of shelf space and their margins aren't particularly great. Uh, I, I want to play it. Not specking on anything. Yeah, I feel you. Terraforming Mars. All right, so let's move on. Awesome, by the way. My favorite board game. I have heard that. All right, so moving on to topics of the week. Uh, Probably one of the biggest pieces of magic news of the year, really. Um, A massive shakeup with the organized play side of Magic the Gathering. Um, 20 years plus of the Pro Tour um, being a fixture of the Magic community is now being uh, surrounded by question marks. 
as Wizards announces that they are looking to um, fulfill a few different objectives by reshaping the way that competitive play is unfurled throughout the year, um, starting in 2019. Um, probably the, the biggest change is that they are kind of dismantling the entire silver, gold, platinum pro thing, um, the automatic invites and airfares for a relatively deep pool of players to the various pro tours during the year. And instead, um, in combination with the pro tours being taking place at Magic Fest, which we already knew about um, from prior news, um, they are they are renaming the pro tour uh, Mythic Invitationals. <laughs> Mythic Championships. Mythic Championships. <laughs> is I'm pretty sure what they're calling. Yeah, the fact that. that like we can't even figure um, this out is pretty telling. But not that we're yeah, idiots. That's I mean, not what the, I should be telling the, you. Oh, that's part of it. But I mean, it's also the fact that the names are so bland and not memorable that nobody should be particularly uh, surprised um, when we can't quite wrap our heads around what they're called. But I'm pretty sure they're Mythic Championships. And uh, the biggest part of those events that changes is that they're taking 32 of the top pros who they have already signed to contracts at $75,000 a year and then setting them up to compete at these major events, um, some of which are going to be just the 32 players and some of which are going to be more akin to something between a GP and a Pro Tour, the best I can understand it, where... uh, players who have qualified through other means, and I suspect that means GP winners plus um, some qualifying tournaments that haven't yet been well-defined, plus some qualifiers on Arena would be my guess, um, are going to lead people to these tournaments where they can challenge for the 32 slots and get on the contract roster for the next year. Was there a question there? <laughs> Were you waiting? I'm just explaining, just explaining okay. what's going yeah, on. Yeah, th- it's... It's a big change uh, for the pros. I mean, the $75,000 contract here is, is a pretty big deal, right? That's guaranteed income at a substantial rate that they didn't have before. I mean, even the Reed Dukes and the Owen Turtonwalds, you know, a, a sponsor, you know, their, their writing contracts aside, out of their, their platinum benefits were worth, what, like 12000 a year or something like that, maybe in that general vicinity. So seventy five grand is like quit all of your jobs you're safe doing only this. However, as Sam Black and some other pros were pointing out, it's only safe if you're the kind of pro who tends to be so consistent that you can hold on to your slot. What is likely to happen is that many of those pros will experience a fair degree of churn. And think about the stress level if Magic is now now is your full-time job, you have quit the other things, you've got the contract for 2019, and you fail to perform, and somebody else takes your slot. Yeah, that that's savage. And I think Tom Martell was commenting about how uh, you thought the cut-up between gold and platinum before was rough. The cut between the 33rd and 32nd player is like, well, now I know what I'm doing for the next year of my life or not. Yeah, they, they did say that there's a $10 million prize pool up for grabs in 2019 across digital and tabletop magic. So that's between Magic Online, Magic Arena, and in-print uh, pro events. And it's unclear to me what, how much of a budget increase that is for the entire department or whether they have just uh, squeezed and tugged 
monies from various things, right? Like all of the airfare invites that they're saving from the people beyond the 32 um, seems like it adds up to a fair pool of money that's probably being reallocated. And so in many ways, I think that this plays into things we have said in the past, which is that um, reducing the number of people at the pro tour is a fairly easy win from their perspective. There's only so many people you can care about personality wise and follow in a given sport. And you might know that there are a thousand plus players in pro sports league X, but you probably only care about your local team plus maybe 15 or 20 players. Um, You can apply those same principles to the magic pro tour and get to the point where you're like, well, yeah, we could keep it this size or we could shrink the number of people involved but amp and then repurpose the funds so it looks like those people um, are being better supported because they have a shot at a bigger chunk. And in the end, we still get to show the same number of matches on screen. We get to show the we get to pick and choose who we want to give a contract to. And that is almost certainly going to be some combination of aesthetics, personality um, quality of play, how good of a streamer they are. You know, they get to start um, really leveraging the the people and personalities that are best for the game as a whole, not just the most talented which, players. Which is ultimately going to be good. It's probably good for Magic, but it's good in an interesting way because if, it, if they're talking about trying to get the players who are the best for the brand and the most fun and interesting to watch and not necessarily the super grindiest, it also means that they can shape the image of Magic too. You know, they can get the people who are more fun to watch. Um, you know, I got to tell you, they're going through all this work, humongous change. I still don't think it's going to really work. I just don't think magic can be that product. What you're, what you're really getting at is you don't think it ever breaks into say the top 10, top 20. No, esports. not even close. I don't even know if they. I don't. I think that I, it, they might be lucky to break even on the endeavor. Okay, um, I've been having some conversations with people that have been putting a lot of thought and analysis into the Magic Arena economy versus Magic Online, and one of the things that has been prevalent in those discussions is that the average revenue per user is actually much lower in Arena. Um, and I don't know what the average player assumes about that or whether they've even thought about it. But the Hearthstone model is a volume model. Um, they charge less per experience in Arena than they do on Magic Online. And what that means is you have to have way more people playing. And so uh, some people I've been talking to have, suspect that uh, Arena is not definitely not breaking a profit yet and has a ways to go to get there. Um, This is part of the bid to get there, clearly. Uh, And I think it's worth noting that you don't actually need for Arena or Magic as an eSport to break into the top 20 or top 10 because the gaming industry as a whole is so gigantic at this point that all you really need is to get bite off the chunk that justifies the project and sets up the profit level on top of the project costs that justify... Um, the ongoing existence of that project. So let's say that the entire video gaming industry is a couple billion dollars or whatever. Sorry, no, it's way more than that. A couple hundred billion dollars, I believe. How big is the gaming industry? Uh, I, it's more than movies now. What is that, like 40 billion or something? Video gaming revenues worldwide. 
one second. I had this number at the tip of my tongue, but I've forgotten. So yeah, it's something like, in the US alone, it was something like $30 billion in 2017. So worldwide is, is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 and I think, mm, I don't want to say a number because it's probably going to be misleading. Bottom line is what I'm getting at is this. The gaming industry is so gigantic. Magic does not even need to get 1% of it to be successful. Arena just needs to be top of its category. Um, probably always behind Hearthstone. Uh, and if it can successfully transition most of the users off Magic Online into Magic Arena and shut down one of the two platforms and also port over the profitability through the expansion of overall user participation because they now are dealing with a more modern platform, then they get the perfect storm of digital plus paper, charge you twice for the same cards, and everything is hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. And as time goes on and technology gets better um, and ways to interact with what is essentially a very complex game get better and better, um, you get the opportunity to replay games. We talked about this in the past. Magic as an esport would be very, very different if not only you could see card deck lists and cards, which we've already seen Star City Games demonstrating in the last couple of months on their streams, um, and I expect will be added to the Pro Tour series this year. Um, but say the ability to um, replay a match that the pros, say the top eight um, of these events ends up being played on Magic Arena. That opens the possibility for all of us to go into Magic Arena and challenge each other to replay the top eight match of our choice using the decks that they were using in the event. Um, And those kinds of opportunities are going to help bring uh, the brand experience full circle. You do that, you like the deck, you go, you buy it, you play it at your F&M, and that's what they're looking for. Yeah, and that's that's certainly appealing, um, the amount of connectivity you can have between Arena and the players at home is great. You'll be able to go watch replays, um, like in-game replays via Arena of the match. Um, you can have, you know, you'll be able to play play the finals match with the decks that the people on the Pro Tour play, sorry, the Mythic Championship played. Um, with your friend, like I'll take John. Um, I was gonna say John Cena, John uh, Finkel's deck, and you. I don't know why I was gonna say Cena. I'll take Finkel's deck, yeah, and you take Elspeth's deck. Because you're gonna play Stu, Stu Summers in some kind of magic uh, wrestling hybrid. Yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, and that type of interaction is really cool. Allows you to kind of experience it. Um, gives them better plugins. Essentially it takes what's traditionally been extremely inaccessible, which is essentially, which is the pro tour, the, the ability to feel like you're part of it um, and makes it easier for players to connect to it. Uh, You know, there was that article though, written right before this. Um, So rewind several weeks, Jerry sits out of the world championships and writes that letter about how wizards is not treating the pros correctly. Uh, which was a you know fair concern on Jerry's part. Wizards was probably snickering as he was writing that article because the uh, Wizards had already at that point in time decided all of this information that you know most of this information that you see now. So it was kind of all for naught. But then this uh, one gentleman whose name name escapes me, and I would have to dig through my Twitter to find it. And I apologize to him, but he wrote this really great article, and he's like, "Look, 
Uh, you know, I, I hear what Jerry and Subject are saying and wizards need to treat their pros better. And I totally understand, but uh, I think you're wrong. Basically, wizards tried the like pro centric pro tour, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, they had all the pro player cards and there was this big narrative about them and uh, it didn't work. Um, and then wizards pivoted to making magic more friendly for the EDH crowd. Um, you know, they stopped driving home the top tier players that wasn't about the players anymore. They reduced the crazy combo decks. They, they put more magic in the red zone. Now GPs, they focus heavily on cosplaying and that type of thing on an artist. And it's less about the main event and more about treating it as a magic, as a convention. They renamed the magic fest, you know, it's right. It's certainly within that line, um, <clears throat> which I don't know, like he raised a lot of good points and he basically said, professional magic and or one of the things he he brought up was how how difficult it is for people to connect with watching magic you have to know so much about the game to be able to watch it in the first place but then you also have to be able to recognize what's going on on screen like recognize the cards i know a lot about magic but i don't know a lot about guilds of ravnica limited so even if i someone in like the top 0.5% of magic knowledge sits down and watches a draft Guilds of Ravnica. I still don't know what the hell's going on because I don't recognize the cards. Uh, there's just so many barriers to making it accessible that even with this huge push, it is kind of kind of difficult to see it catching fire, but simply because it's just so so much harder to get into than other other games. But I could be wrong. I'm obviously Hearthstone continues to be successful, right? It's very big. It's the biggest uh, digital card game. People watch it. They get hyped for the finals. And uh, I mean, if you had asked me if that was going to happen prior, you know, during Hearthstone's launch, I, I would have said no because it didn't seem like people want to sit around and watch card games. But here we are. Um, I guess at the very least, I'm, I'm hopeful that Wizards will really lean into the flavor of this. And in the same way that Hearthstone, you know, they play their championships in the 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 little tavern there, right? Like they build a tavern on stage and the players play within that, that setting. I hope magic does something cool with it instead of a folding table with a black tablecloth with a couple studio <laughs> lights. Yeah. So a few commentaries first, uh, the number I was searching for is about 120 billion for 2018 digital gaming. Um, and the market is on track for year over year growth for the next decade estimated to be double digits. So single, like 10 to 15% a year, which is massive growth. And so a lot of people after these, these announcements were made were commenting on that gentleman's article. And the guy's name was A.D. Jameson, by the way, um, and saying like, oh, my God, like the, the, this tweet aged worse than any other. Like this guy completely out of touch, doesn't understand, didn't, didn't at all understand where Wizards was heading. And I'm not sure I fully agree with that. Like, sure, if his, if his primary thrust was that um, the pros are going to be left aside completely, then he was wrong. But I didn't read his article that way anyway. I, I got the impression it was more about highlighting that though competitive magic would always have a role in the game, that Wizards had come around to the idea that the casual portion of the market was much larger than the competitive market and that they could sell the casual market a lot of cards. I think for maybe the first 10, 15 years of the game, the understanding within Wizards of the Coast, because of what the Jameson referred to as the invisibles, the people that don't show up at tournaments or aren't playing at LGSs, um, because they didn't have good data on those people, they couldn't really cater to them. And they probably were in doubt as to whether they bought much product. When you say that there are 20 million Magic players, that doesn't mean that all of those players spend the level at the level that we spend on the game. 
um, as speculators slash players, it's much more likely that they spend a lot less. So the question was probably, do these people spend $10 a year, $50 a year, $100? Can we sell them $500 worth of product if we can get in touch with them, if we can market to them successfully? And that's the evolving conversation that's taken place. And as they have struggled to grow the game past Return to Ravnica era, where during the takeoff of Duels the Planeswalkers and the advent of tablet gaming, um, that very successful launch uh, coming out of the recession led to the most explosive growth in the player base of the last decade. That's what they're trying to recreate again. And I think that when you look at this restructuring, you have to look at it from the lens of Wizards saying, you know, two things. One, we don't want to get caught flat footed and left behind by the digital gaming revolution. The biggest portion of the entertainment industry is now gaming and if and uh, sorry, digital gaming. And if we are not a part of digital gaming, then we are only a part of print gaming, which is like a fraction of that amount. There might be 20 billion worldwide in all gaming that's non-digital versus 120 billion plus and growing for the digital segment. And so Wizards as a, you know, division of Hasbro, a global toy company has to be looking at gaming evolving into the digital space. And that has always needed to be part of what they are attempting to accomplish. That doesn't mean that they're ever going to be Activision Blizzard or have the kind of reach or budget that they can challenge a game like Hearthstone head on. But it does mean that they can double or treble their efforts in the hopes of keeping pace with the industry to some extent, getting away from the the morass of Magic Online, which is still a piece of software that looks like it's 20 years old, and at least presenting a uh, uh, respectable digital version of the brand to the marketplace so that, again, they can keep charging us twice. <laughs> Some people have said that, that all of this investment and in in, in these changes to the competitive scene signal that they're trying to get rid of paper. That is a terrible read. There's First of all, paper is still like 70 to 90% of the brand, depending on how you interpret the numbers. There's no way they, they want to or could ever pursue shutting that down, nor is there any reason to. If, if, they, if there was a third format, like on the ethereal plane, they would be happy to sell yeah. us the cards a third time. <laughs> they're, they're certainly not looking for opportunities to narrow the number of times they can sell you the same product. Any situation where you can go through one design development cycle and then roll it out in two different ways and make people pay twice is a huge win and not something that all industries have access to. For instance, Hearthstone doesn't effectively sell a physical product. And that's not something that Blizzard Activision has done especially well at any point. There was a World of Warcraft card game at one point that did well for a little while and then flared out, lasted a few years. Meanwhile, Magic, the Gathering, and Print has been a thing for 25 years. So the, the sum total of all of this is that I wouldn't interpret this as a strong um, signal of support for the pros. And I think the take that that article... Um, was wrong because it suggested that they were uh, de-emphasizing pros is off base. It's As we talked about, they're shuffling a bunch of money around. Some pros are going to do a lot better, especially if they can provide, if they can present consistency and stay on the 75,000 plus my winnings game plan, which could make for a really healthy lifestyle. If, if you can string together five years on that tour at 75,000 plus say another 75,000 in winnings, you could be doing very well for yourself. And the pro tour like events are apparently going to have twice as much money. Um, I'm a little confused about this uh, mythic uh, MTG Arena Mythic Invitational event that they're running at PAX East in Boston on March 28th to the 31st. 
In the announcement, it says, We're kicking off Magic's new esports and competitive gaming program with a special $1 million MTG Arena Mythic Invitational event at PAX East in Boston on those dates. The invitation will showcase players in the new Magic Pro League battling against challengers. So it's unclear to me if that is the 32 plus a GP type environment where anybody can show up or given that it's called the Mythic Invitational, whether those people have qualified through pro points from last year or um, uh, GP winners, top eighters, um, or through Magic Arena plus Magic Online or some combination of the two, uh, not 100% clear. They said they're going to reveal more information in January and then we're going to get a a sense of how you can get the snag, those elusive slots. Um, My guess would be that they're probably going to lean pretty heavily on people qualifying through Arena to try to push the platform, right? Yeah, and I think at at the very least at the start, they're probably going to want to drive people to Arena to really make the point that this is a joint adventure, right? That this is split evenly between paper and digital and i just i want to throw out a quick comment here that <clears throat> people thinking they're going to get rid of paper magic are, are insane for not only for the reasons you listed which are all totally valid um but more and more the more digital hobbies players have uh the more time you spend in front of your computer screen or your phone screen doing these things offering an experience different than that is going to remain novel um it's why the vinyl industry for music is so huge uh, when, you know, because everyone moved to MP3 players and the, the value of having that, that object that had, you know, better sound and, and a different experience was, was something that really appealed to people who were so used to the digital products. So, you know, ending up in a world where you offer this unique, fun paper experience that they don't get anywhere else is going to be uh, a big draw, I believe. So... There is a, a bit of a hint that plays into the theory that people have about the the death of paper magic, but it's not paper magic that I think is threatened, but LGS uh, competitive gaming. Um, and the reason for that is the, the next paragraph in this announcement. The rest of 2019 will feature a new series of mythic championships, uh, i.e. pro tours, that are high prize pool, high drama events in both MTG Arena and Tabletop. So you had suggested like maybe it's they draft... Um, on arena and then play standard or modern in paper or something like that um, some combination mm-hmm. you'll be able to qualify for mdg arena mythic championships by playing mdg arena at home duh they're calling them mdg arena mythic championships so obviously arena is involved and then testing your skills against the stars in the magic pro league so it actually sounds like at the invitational and the pro tours you can qualify at minimum through arena it's not clear whether you can also qualify through GP wins, or which are Magic Fest weekends, um, or uh, through Magic Online, or through um, winning some new version of Pro Tour qualifiers at the regional level. People people that have been in that scene are well aware that there has been uh, uh, Pro Tour regional Pro Tour qualifiers and then Pro Tour qualifiers for mega regions um, for the last several years, and it's unclear what the future of that is now. I mean, it's it's wild to imagine that maybe they get rid of qualifying via paper. Like, what if they got rid of GPs? Like, not. I'm sorry. What if they 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 changed the name of GPs to Magic Fest? What if they eventually got rid of the main event as we know it um, and made it more about hanging out and playing Magic for fun and less about qualifying for something and having a big tournament? Uh, or they reduce the presence of the tournament 
um, in more than just language. Kind of crazy to imagine that being a good idea. Well, there are a bunch of benefits to running big tournament days as flights as opposed to a singular main event. That's why pre-releases, pre-releases at very like high-functioning stores often do that. They don't wait and have everybody sit down at the same time to pre-release. They'll run a flight every three hours or whatever. Um, and and mm-hmm. why drafts have always been like, they go off as they fill. You know, put your name on the list and when eight people are here, we'll run it. Um, because that model is much more manageable in terms of straining the staff resources and getting things done in staggered amounts of time. So... It's entirely possible that Magic Fests are GP, are, you know, the, the end goal is that Magic Fests are a, a bunch of medium-sized tournaments and small tournaments with no main event, or they could just keep the main event, but winning the main event doesn't necessarily qualify you for the Pro Tour, or only the winner qualifies or something like that. Like, um, There's a bunch of different ways they could go with that, but it does seem to suggest that they are going to lean much more heavily towards Pro, the competitive Magic, um, they want you to play arena because they're trying to push arena. Whether that ends up undercutting yeah. the success factor at LGSs remains to be seen and is very curious, right? The would LGSs survive without the competitive scene is is what you end up asking yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the question that I don't think we have the answer to. We would really need to get somebody who who runs a store and knows what the numbers look like. And I imagine it depends on the store too. Some stores probably, I'm sure, do a huge amount of business in EDH and don't really run a lot of competitive events. And other other stores could lean in the other direction. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it'll be on a case by case basis. But I will tell you this much: it is clear that if you want to be a professional Magic player, you have to have an Arena account. Uh, It is not clear that if you want to be a professional magic player, you need to own magic cards. Yep. Um, And I have to imagine that it is, I imagine that at a certain point you kind of have to own paper cards, but you might be able to get a lot further with just an arena account than with paper cards. Yeah. Um, They also mentioned a few things like tabletop mythic championships after London will not offer travel awards. Um, So basically travel awards are just, removed completely um for the mythic championships past a certain point they've also this also means the death of a whole bunch of i think you know popular or semi-popular programs including nationals that whole infrastructure is being dismantled there will be no national champions in magic for the foreseeable future um there's no national program for 2019 so there will be no u.s national champion no canadian champion etc which Further means there is no World Magic Cup, so global teams of Magic competitors are not coming together to play against each other anymore. Um, the Pro Tour Team Series is being dismantled. That was an experiment from the last few years where their first take on esports was, well, esports are about teams. we got to have teams, so we're going to feature teams. And I think what they mm-hmm. found along the way was there are a very shallow number of teams that people care about <laughs> and that can consistently present uh uh, it's tough because you can form a team, but if your team doesn't all stay qualified for the pro tour, then you've got to reshuffle the team. And then the whole concept of the team brand, if it's really hinged on the player personalities, falls apart. Because it's not like Harayuya as a brand was very important to me emotionally, but I might have been able to connect to the specific players. If they swap in and out, then my connection to that team is lost. And I think that they've figured out that out, that that's going to be a little weird. And that's also one of the reasons there are contracts for 32 people is because that provides some degree of consistency, at least on a year by year basis for who's going to show up at major events. Um, the, the whiplash here is insane, right? Like 
they announced they were going to make they made teams a really big part of the pro tour and i remember they even announced it was like three weeks before the pro tour they're like oh if you show up with a team with jerseys you get like a bonus and we'll feature you as like a a team and because we gave you such short notice you only need t-shirts at this pro tour but you have to have a true jersey next time um and i remember the time frame was really really short because we were talking about trying to throw together t-shirts for a group for something we were doing at the time and then it was supposed to be teams were this big thing and no one has ever talked about teams or cared at all in the last two years and then suddenly we got this and then recently we got this announcement that there were going to be six pro tours a year right we did not even get to that and this announcement's like by the way we're canceling that we're not doing six pro tours a year anymore and so like the fact that they're canceling programs that hadn't even started yet that's kind of staggering um, and you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of them doing the moving to the two block or the the eighteen month rotation cycle, and having gotten exactly eighteen months into that program and being like, "We're canceling it and going back to two years." And everyone's like, "Wait, you just switched. You have to give it time to find or, its legs." So or we're not going to have masterpieces. Now we have them back again. Or we're not going to have yeah. a masterpiece set. Now they're back again. Etc. Yeah, it's just so much, so like so much change so fast. And Magic, as a, as a, as a experience, as a as a greater whole, does not change quickly. It is not experienced quickly, right? Like pro tours are only every several months. Blocks rotate between a year and two. Like these aren't really quick like we're going to change it and change it and change it and change it it takes times for the changes to manifest uh so this level of 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 adjustment this fast is just reeks of mismanagement it reeks of like marketing team guesswork of a team working in the dark coming up with ideas testing them comparing them to the established goal lines and when they fall short switching plans which sometimes you have to do um, if you don't have a good benchmark or you don't have people on staff that you're, you know, if you ha- don't pay enough to recruit the best, which Hasbro is fam- infamous for not doing, then you are going to continuously run into this bro- problem. They're also in a very unique position. This is a weird product. Um, there's almost nothing like it across the gaming industries other than things that have emulated it. And for it to bridge the gap between paper and digital was always going to be some kind of unique shot in the dark. Um, other teams maybe could have done a better job, possibly, but it's really hard to say. And it's far too easy to criticize from <laughs> from our desk chairs. However, um, there are a few other points here. They also undermined the Pro Tour Hall of Fame because they said that 2019 will be the last year of qualification and voting as you know it. So apparently like voting happens normally in 2019, but past that, it does not. And the it sounded like, without them saying it explicitly, uh, it's not clear that the Hall of Famers are automatically invited to these tournaments. Yeah, they did not mention that at all. Like, they're definitely not part of the 32, unless no. they happen to be active players with a chance of qualifying. Someone like an LSV could easily hit that level, should he so choose. Um, although he's got other day jobs. Um, but Pro Tour, like somebody like a Kai Bude, you know, one of the greatest of all time or a John Finkel may not necessarily be invited to pro tours anymore. And I think that, I think that would be a mistake and a step too far. I, I think that for them not to be included in the 32 makes sense, but for them, if they're going to run say tournaments with a hundred or 150 people instead of like 300, there should at minimum be a rotating set of slots for hall of famers. 
Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. Cutting out the best players in the world is crazy to me. Even if if you don't give them anything for coming, but you allow them to compete for the prize pool, even just that is something. But taking players like Kai and, and some of the other um, pros out there who you know have such a legacy with the game and saying, eh, nah, the Hall of Fame thing doesn't matter anymore. Like that's pretty rough, um, but because I w- because one of the because one of the things that's important, like one of the opportunities that's unique with Magic and other games that are based on intelligence, is that though Kai is definitely not in his prime with Magic because he doesn't play as much as he used to, um, some of the other players like Finkel have demonstrated like every time he shows up at the Pro Tour, a he's got good teams he's testing with, but he's still one of the best in in the world. Um, at any given Pro Tour, he has a he has a shot at making top eight. And so one of the things they could do is say, we're going to reserve, say, eight slots um, for each of these newfangled pro tours for the Hall of Famers. But we're going to give them to whichever of them is currently qualified with the most qualifier points. So if Kai wants to show up, he's got to kick the shit out of people on Magic Arena all year. Which which I think is probably roughly what we could see with this, because there are a lot of people in the Hall of Fame, a lot of people that most people have never heard of, um, who played Magic way back when it was a very different game. Uh, getting into the Pro Hall of Fame looked very different. Uh, it, it was a good bit a good bit different than than it is today. So they're pro, you know if they start offering bigger and bigger prize pools at this event, suddenly these players who never really bothered to come before because like why would they uh, could find themselves like oh hey uh, I didn't care before but now I care now I want to come and because there's so much money on the on the table and Wizards might want to avoid having players that you know, they don't feel actually deserve it uh, showing up at these high value tournaments. Yeah. So we'll have to revisit this possibly with some special guests uh, in early 2019. Once we've got a better handle on how this is all shaping up. Um, I guess the only other thing we wanted to touch on that we've already kind of touched on a bit this week is where things are going with ultimate masters. Um, People have been arguing to me that they think there are one to possibly as high as two million boxes of this set being printed. Um, I'm having a lot of trouble believing that that is the case. That is the equivalent of 25,000 LGSs worldwide getting 40 boxes apiece. Yeah. Do you think we? Do you think the number is lower or higher? Ah, uh, then a million boxes. That does seem pretty, uh, pretty wild. Pretty wild guess. It's a million boxes. That's it's a lot of boxes of magic cards. It, it it really makes me wonder what the print run on like cons of Tarkir or whatever set you're talking about. So, like one of the interesting like data points, aren't would- they? Yeah, so like, I've been told that that's more that's closer to what a fall set is like, like one one point two to almost two million boxes for something like Battle for Zendikar or Concert Turkey. Yeah, um, fall sets being the biggest chunk of the year. I think one of the reasons that the community is not fully under like gauge like able to gauge these numbers well is because they may think that each product comes out is kind of just equivalent, like conspiracy is equivalent to a fall set. None of which is true. Depending on when the product comes out during the year, they expect different degrees of free cash flow in the marketplace amongst the demographic that's being targeted. And they are printing to those expectations, not only predictively, but also based on they have tons of historical data on this. They know how much more they can sell 
in October than they can in, say, January or March or whatever. Um, and there's a reason that the schedule for the year is structured as it is. There's a reason that leading into the holiday season, we got two huge premium products, Mythic Edition and then Ultimate Masters, right? Um, because they're leaning into the periods of the year where people spend the most money. Um, Q4 is where the hobby and gaming industry usually makes most of its money. And that's why we saw those products at that time. And so it leads me to believe that I, I, a million seems high to me. First of all, I don't think there's 25,000 LGSs. Um, and people said, well, sports and more sold like 5,000 by themselves. I, they, they actually sold closer to 10,000 total. Um, it was like seven or 8,000 last I checked. Um, let's say that there are 50 sports and more selling 10,000 each. That would be 500,000 boxes sold. Then you need a whole bunch of LGSs chewing up a significant portion of boxes. And the reality is there aren't 50 sports and mores. In fact, there might not even be 10 sports and mores. There are a bunch of Channel Fireballs and Star City Games that are going to move single-digit thousands of boxes, but they're not going to move 100,000 boxes. And out, and I think that the perspective from the U.S. is pretty warped because Magic is much smaller per capita in many other countries than it is in the U.S. Like, like despite there being some very good players in South America, the average person in South America has not heard of this game. And that's true of Africa. That's true of um, most of Asia and where, you know, Magic isn't even close to the top game and still big in Europe, still big in Japan, still big in the U.S. But, you know. In Europe, we've seen for that casual formats are much less popular. That's why we can make money doing arbitrage over there. And if you look at the Wizards Play Network and you pick any given postal code, even one in California, which has got to have the highest population density of anywhere in North America. And, you know, you look at a place like San Francisco or L.A. Um, or San Diego and you start to add up all those LGSs, you're not going to get and then extrapolate that to the world. You're not going to get numbers that support this, you know, million box use case. Now, if that's a million printed and they're going to be released in, say, multiple waves through 2019, big wave now, say 50, 60 percent of it, then another 20 percent wave later this spring, then another 20 percent towards the end of the year. Eh, that might be possible. Um, but I think it's much more reasonable to assume that the number is somewhere between 500,000 and a million. And if that's the case, then there are, you know, at 500,000. Um, then you have 12,500 of each box topper plus the like 250 per box topper that they got sent out in the mail, um, for the apologies, uh, over mythic edition. And then, you know, up to a million, then you're talking about 25,000 box toppers. So it's probably safe to assume that there are between 15,000 and 20,000 box toppers, which is about twice what I estimated there were for masterpieces. But my margin of error on the masterpieces could easily have been two times. Like if I said there was 10,000 inventions, maybe there was 20,000. Um, my range was always between those two numbers. So it's safe to say that there might be anywhere from 1.25 to say 2.5 more box toppers than there are of previous masterpieces. However, there's also the um, demand profile of the cards in question to consider. I think it's uh, definitive that this set of masterpieces, this, these set of box toppers, feature more high-profile, high-demand, important, modern, and EDH cards that are often played as four-ofs than any yes. other premium product they've ever released. Would you agree? And if that's the case, then the demand in the market 
can overcome the additional supply, which would explain why, just in the first week alone, supply is having trouble catching up to demand on TCG Player. We're only seeing something like 20 to 80 listings for each of these box hoppers when I would have expected to see two or 300 as we did with Inventions. What, did we did we cross two or 300 on Inventions? I thought it was like peaked at like 100 and something. That might be true. It, it might have been closer to 100 to 200, but it was still significantly more. And that was coming from a fall set. So that makes sense to me. Like say that opening couple weeks of Kaladesh, you had 100, 150 listings of most of the uh, masterpieces. And here we're seeing, say, an average of 50 or something. That's about the ratio I would expect between my expected print run for a fall set versus expected print run for Ultimate Masters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't think the supply is definitely a little lower than we would have expected, but all of these numbers fall within margins that I don't think meaningfully change our our actions, our actions, right? Like even if it's twice as much as we thought there might have been, it's not you're not talking about that much of an increase in product re- relative to the market. Uh, so I don't think that has a dramatic impact on, on the prices really over time. Have you bought any yet? Uh, which ones? The box toppers? Any of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, I haven't. I was, wi- I, I want to, um, but I have not pulled the trigger on any yet. We're, we're talking about buying a house. So I've been trying to, save my pennies a little bit yep fair enough but that doesn't mean that i don't think about it (laughs) yeah so i mean we'll we'll keep checking in on this um and i'm gonna write a follow-up article to my earlier ultimate masters article talking about inventory levels and price trends in the next couple weeks that i'll usually i'll probably cap the year with and then we'll check in again in three months and see where things have ended up okay it'll be interesting all right so i just sent you a link um just as we're recording here uh, Saffron was sent uh, on Twitter. Uh, early Ravnica Allegiance le- card has been leaked. Looks like a promo card. Mm-hmm. Um, so the card is called Light the Stage. It is a sorcery for two and a red. Uh, you can exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn. You can play these cards. And it has an ability called Spectacle for one red. Not clear to me how spectacle works hmm maybe if you've already cast an instant or sorcery this turn you're doing a bunch of stuff at once yeah i don't know huh it's not defined on the card maybe it requires you to discard a card or something to cast it for mm. less. Interesting. Anyway, by the time you guys hear this, I'm sure it'll have been figured out. And you'll be yelling at us. So we'll move right along. Um, where can people find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. And I write every Monday for MTG Price, uh, the Watchtower series. And yourself? Yep. 
You guys can find me on Twitter at MDGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MDGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MDGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 147. Uh, That was a good time. I thought we covered a lot of interesting content. Uh, Curious to see how all this plays out over the coming months. And I will see you here again next week to discuss it all. Thanks again, James. Thank you, Travis. Thank you to the pros for all the hard work they've done promoting the game and making us love it so much. I hope everything works out for those folks. (laughs) And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance where we're not relying on contracts from the man to keep our pocketbooks heavy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.